Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. Thanks so much for checking us out. At Echo, we are all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ, and today we'll be studying the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the historic account of how the apostles received power from Jesus and then carried the truth of the gospel to the entire world. In its pages, Luke details God's brilliant and timeless strategy for re-establishing his kingdom in the world. It's quite simple. Jesus will supply power to his witnesses for telling people everywhere about him. Here's Pastor Phil Nauer. I want to welcome you back in to our Bible study on the book of Acts. So if you have a Bible with you, open it up or turn it on and log on to uh, however you view the Bible, digitally or in your hands in front of you. Uh, just catching you up real quick before I invite our, our uh, young lady who's going to be leading us in reading this morning. Before I invite her up, let me catch you up real quick if you weren't here for any of the past couple ones. So far, we've studied the first one and a half chapters of the book of Acts, written by Luke. Chapter one covers a period of history for us. Luke documents by recreating through eyewitness accounts um, about... 40 days in the life of Jesus. He begins the story after Jesus' resurrection in chapter 1. And he takes the next 40 days and he tells us, here's what Jesus did for those 40 days after he was risen from the dead and before he ascended the final time to heaven. And Luke tells us there's two primary things Jesus was doing in the 40 days he spent on earth during that 40-day window. Two things. One, he was re-emphasizing content that he had already previously taught over the last three years about God's kingdom. He was pretty much going back through and saying, I've already taught this to you before, but now that I've done all this stuff, let me teach it to you again. No new content is coming out here, just re-emphasizing previous content. Okay, it was good the first time, it was even better now that they had understanding about who he was. The second thing he was doing was making promise after promise after promise, for the same thing. Over and over and over again, he's making a promise, making a promise. And that promise was, when I go back to heaven and I sit down at the right hand of my dad, the last thing that I'm going to do in that transition is I'm going to send to you, his own words from John 14, another one just like me. I'm going to send to you the Holy Spirit. So during that 40 days, we've studied this already, chapter 1, Luke says Jesus was re-emphasizing stuff he already taught, and he's making promises to send him the Holy Spirit. Then he ascends to heaven in front of lots of witnesses. He literally, physically, like just, I don't know, just zooms up, and they watch him until he disappears into the sky. Then Luke shifts his attention to the Christians, the Jewish followers of Jesus at that point, the Jewish Christians, so that group of disciples, they leave that mountain and they go wait in the urban center of Jerusalem for 10 days for God to deliver the promise that Jesus made to them for the Holy Spirit. <coughs> Excuse me. Then last week, uh, we, we kind of tied up the loose ends. They weren't just sitting in a room waiting. They, they were studying the Bible together. And as they studied the Bible, something came very clear to them. It says, well, the Bible tells us that we should replace this 12th person, they, the, the, you know, the original 12 were down to 11 because Judas committed suicide. And they said, we're reading in the Bible. It tells us we should be doing something we're not doing. That's a good thing to do, read the Bible. And if it tells you to do something you're not doing, you should probably do it. 
And they said, we should replace this person. And so they, uh, you know, they have a nominating committee and they, you know, they cast lots and they have an election and they vote in a successor. And now we move into chapter two when we spent the last two weeks in chapter two. In the beginning of chapter two, we find ourselves in a date on the calendar, a very specific date. We are on the Jewish festival of Passover. 50 days after Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So we have a 50-day time period here. And now they're, on, they're before 9 a.m. on the Jewish festival of Passover. And every single Christian on the face of the earth was under one roof at one time. And they're waiting for the promise of God. And in that moment, we don't know what they were doing, but they were startled. Something happened that they were kind of expecting, but not to happen at that moment. A, a sound of a rushing mighty wind fills the room and fires. Something looks like fire comes down and separates and sits on their heads individually. They all begin to speak in other tongues as the Holy Spirit gives them the ability to do so. And they're experiencing a mighty outpouring, literal language, a raining down, a saturation of the Holy Spirit. Back in the Gospel of John, when it records that they were all saved, it says they received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was deeply immersed into their life and into their world, and into their activity. And now they're having a a distinct experience, something that happened after they got saved, after that initial experience, where they're being placed deeply into the life of the Holy Spirit and His activity, and His mission. And they're given special power to do, in this case, to be witnesses. And so this sound spills out into the street where thousands of Jews are probably already getting ready to go to 9 a.m. worship. And they hear the sound, and Luke says they come running, and a crowd starts to form. Now there's a crowd numbering into the thousands, probably upwards of 10,000 people are now milling about, and and they come face to face, eyeball to eyeball, ear to mouth with the 120 who probably by now have emptied out of that upper room because they wouldn't have all fit in that one room. And they're now speaking in languages they haven't learned but are familiar to the ears of at least 15 different language groups simultaneously and the crowd begins to ask questions and Luke starts to document their reactions. So people are coming face to face with unexplained supernatural phenomena and they're asking the following questions. What does this mean? How is this possible? And could they possibly be hammered drunk? So you have all the reactions that Luke says when people are encountering something inexplicable. They're encountering in church language a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. But they don't know exactly what it is that they're encountering. And, they ask, and Luke says they were amazed and amused and confused and bewildered and skeptical. And some of them were doubters. And what do we see by this? We see that these gifts, these manifestations of the Holy Spirit in and of themselves were enough to create interest, conversation, but not enough to move them the whole way to conviction and salvation. There was a mighty pouring out of God's Spirit. It drew a crowd. They asked questions. It erased curiosity. But if the story ended right here and the 120 went back up in the upper room and had a good time speaking in tongues, nobody would have been converted. Nobody would have been saved. Nobody's life would have been transformed. What they still needed was for somebody to step up and bring a clear explanation of the truth of what was going on here to draw people to Jesus. And that's precisely what happens next. And so let's read that together. I'm going to invite uh, Stephanie to come. Stephanie Deanna is going to come and read to us this passage this morning. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2 beginning at verse 14. So Steph's going to read this to us this morning, and then we'll spend a little time just pulling out some truth out of here and seeing how Peter dealt with um, an extemporaneous instance of public speaking. 
right, many of you know me, some of you don't. I'm Stephanie Deanna. There's two of us that are, I think, belong to this church, but I'm the better one, obviously. Um, I don't like to read in front of crowds, but you do know me. You know I like to talk, so we'll get through this. Um, then Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and shouted to the crowd, Listen carefully, all of you, fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk. As some of you are assuming, 9 o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. No, what you see here is predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. In these last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men and will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike. And they will prophesy. And I will cause, sorry, I will cause wonders in the heavens above and the signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark and the moon will turn blood red before that great and glorious day of the, door, the Lord arrives. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus, the Nazarene, by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you will know. But God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. King David said this about him. I see that the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. No wonder, no wonder my heart is glad and my tongue shouts his praises. My body rests in hope. For you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You have shown me the way of life, and you will fill me with the joy of your presence. Dear brothers, think about this. You can be sure that the patriarch David wasn't referring to himself, for he died and was buried, and his tomb is still here among us. But he was a prophet, and he knew God had promised his, with his, an oath that one of David's own descendants would sit on his throne. David was looking into the future and speaking of the Messiah's resurrection. He was saying that God would not leave him among the dead or allow his body to rot in the grave. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witness of this. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven and at God's right hand. And the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us. Just as you see and hear today, for David himself never ascended into heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be Lord and Messiah. Yeah, this is a long one. <laughs> Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you, to your children, and those far away, 
all who have been called by the Lord our God. Then Peter continues preaching for a long time, strongly urging all of his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. Well done. Very well done. That was a lot of reading, a lot of words. Do I get a star? You get a star. It's redeemable for free coffee on the way out, you know? Um, yeah, that's a long one. This is just one of those samples from Scripture that you can't really chop up. It needs to be kind of kept all together. And I'm just going to tell you right now, there's no way that I can unpack every individual verse for you in the time that I have this morning. And so um, that's a relief to most of you, I realize. But for me, it always brings tension in my heart because it's like, which parts does God want me to raise out this time? And which ones do I leave till next time? Um, I like vocabulary words. Do any of you know what the word glossophobia means? I figured Dr. Joe knew, right? Yeah, fear of speaking. Yeah. Um, before 2017, glossophobia was consistently ranked in the top five fears of Americans. It was ahead of uh, being the victim of a terrorist attack. It was ahead of the fear of death. And I'm sure for some people thinking, like, if I had to speak publicly, that would be worse than dying. You know, like, that would be the thing. Now, interestingly enough, after 2017, some of the polling services said that that has moved farther down the list. Um, things like the number one fear in the most recent poll that I was able to get my hands on was a 2017 fear index poll. And the number one fear was government corruption. And so, you know, it's interesting. There's a whole lot to be said there that I probably shouldn't say anything about in the few minutes that I have this morning, but it's interesting how those things move around. But if statistics are to be anywhere near accurate, at least 50% of you are really, you have glossophobia. You are terrified of the possibility that you might have to speak publicly in front of a group of people. And here's where this passage absolutely raises tension for at least half of us because I want and I want you to listen to me and I want you to think about this it is inescapable for a Christian to speak to other people God commands Christians and his followers our primary assignment as his followers has everything to do with you and me talking to other people regularly. We are assigned by God to do this. Go into all the world, right? And depending on your translation, preach, teach, make disciples. Every single time you read through Jesus' instructions and the apostolic teaching on what we're supposed to be doing with our life, you cannot escape the fact that every single one of us is assigned by the king of the universe to talk to people, to talk to them. And God who created us knows that for at least half of us, that terrifies us. Or at least standing up like what I'm doing right now and talking to people in that context would be terrifying. Now, be relieved, he's not asking all of us to address crowds of a few hundred or a few thousand or 10,000. In fact, if you've been with us for the last few years, we've done a lot of deep studies on the beauty of that. Even though we're assigned to talk to other people, God allows great variety in how that happens through the prism of our personality. And he doesn't ask us to change who we are. And there's many different ways and many different approaches for that. But understand the scenario Peter finds himself in. He did not get up at 6 o'clock that morning prepared to address a hostile crowd of 10,000 people without a microphone. 
He did not have time to go prepare a sermon. He didn't have a whole library full of books to go through and brush up on. He didn't have this assignment put before him. He was minding his own business with the other Christians doing whatever they were doing. And moments after the Holy Spirit poured out on him, the same guy who 50 days ago couldn't even put together a sentence in front of a small bonfire now raises his voice and he, be, he gives probably the most powerful gospel message ever recorded in Scripture. And I want to tell you how that matters to us. It matters to us spiritually and it matters to us practically. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, God expects you and me to be talking to people everywhere all the time about who Jesus is and telling them with our words and our mouth and our voice about the good news of Jesus. You and I can't escape it. And if escape it, and if we're not talking to people about Jesus, we are failing in our assignment to God. And so that leaves tension for us that this passage begins to resolve. Because anytime you talk to anybody, there's two things at play: content and presentation. Content and presentation. And I want to make it as simple as I can this morning. Talking to people about Jesus is the same thing. There's two things at play. Content and presentation. In fact, I made our big idea out of this. Let's look at the big idea real quick. The big idea is that being an effective witness, remember we defined witness a few weeks ago. It's a word that is introduced to us in the New Testament by Jesus and then by the apostles. A witness is simply someone who sees something, experiences something, and then is called upon to tell other people about what they saw or they experienced. An effective witness for Jesus boils down to two things. A deep personal understanding of the gospel, that is the content. What am I supposed to be telling other people about Jesus? You have to have a deep personal understanding of the gospel. The body of truth that has stood the test of time, the objective, stubborn, historical facts of the gospel. But you have to couple that understanding with the ability to communicate it to people that you talk to. That's the presentation. And what we see here in this story is that through the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter, who by every natural measurement was unprepared for public speaking class that day. Now, public speaking class was required when I went to high school. Shouldn't be a shock to you. It was one of my favorites. I could not understand why people sweat bullets about it. I loved it. I loved public speaking. It was easy for me. Maybe too easy. And I couldn't understand how other people dreaded it. They hated when that you know, when that, I love the extemporaneous, one of our assignments was an extemporaneous speech. You know, an unprepared one. You had to draw a topic out of a hat and then give a three-minute speech on it. I was like, this is great. It set me up for a future in car sales. It was great. I could talk endlessly about something I hadn't prepared to talk about. Um, now, my topic, I still remember, was the price of rice in China. I actually went eight minutes on that. I was just, I don't even know how I ended up where I ended up. But, I mean, there was applause and tears and laughter and they were throwing flour. It was great. Um, Peter did not get up ready for this. And for most of us, this particular scenario would terrify you. But I want you to watch how he seized upon an opportunity opened by the Holy Spirit in the few moments that I have this morning. And we're going to draw out some practical things. We're just going to look at it very briefly. We're going to go through this pretty quickly. So I'm going to talk faster. So you need to listen fast today. Okay, and I need you to think. I need you to do two things for me today. Listen, and I need you to think. I need you to listen, and I need you to think. So let's, let's move ahead. The first thing that he does, way back at the, a content is what you say. 
And if you're going to get anybody to listen to you, what you say better be worthwhile. Because you will always be forced into situations in life where someone's delivering you content you could care less about. It's miserable for both of you. You're going to say something you want people to listen to, it better be worth their while. Like, how can I overcome glossophobia? How can I reconcile the tension I have with being uncomfortable with talking to people about my faith with the assignment I have on me to talk to people about my faith? We're going to crack that nut together this morning, and hopefully that gives you some incentive to listen. But then there's a presentation. You can have really good things to say and present it really lousy. That's how you say it. In fact, in a lot of relationship dysfunction, I'm always, when there's communi- it's usually about how people are communicating, when they're angry, when they're frustrated, when they're sad, when they want something. When, and it usually boils down to a problem with the content. You're saying or thinking something that's wrong, offensive, insensitive, out of line, or presentation. You didn't like the dinner, and you chose a bad way to express it. It's a problem with the presentation. In Peter, we see both. In this example, we see both. First thing that happens... Um, Let's look at it real quick. The first thing that happens is it says he stood up with the other 11 and he already knew the questions that were on the audience's mind. So in this moment, he decides rather than to start at the conclusion of what he thought was important, he listened to what was already on the minds of the people in the street and he uses humor to diffuse a potentially hostile crowd. Because when you got people that are a little hostile to you and you have to talk to them, a great way to break the ice is use humor if you can find it. It'll at least break the tension long enough for them to listen to the next paragraph. And this is what he does. He's aware that there's a situation going on that's on all their minds. There are 120 people from Galilee that are normally thought to be uneducated. They have really garbled speak. Their dialect is already hard to understand. And now they're speaking in the native languages of at least 15 different countries where a lot of these people originated. And they're saying, what is going on here? How can this be? They must be drunk. And Peter says, come on, come on, come on. They're not hammered. It's only We're getting ready to go to church. They're not hammered. (laughs) You know, they have a little joke. It's a diffusion of the tension. He says there's actually something deeper at play here. And here's how he starts the whole conversation he wasn't prepared for. He stands up with the 11. Okay, he's got a unified front here. And he starts by saying, what is on the mind of the person I want to talk to today? And let me use that as a bridge to get them to what I want to talk about. And along the way, I will prove to them that what I want to talk about to them should really be on their mind in the first place. He starts by saying, you know what? There's a national event going on here today. And whether it's global warming or what's going on with the president being impeached or who won the game, he's able to listen into the people, what they're thinking about, use some humor to get their attention, and then the very next thing that he does is he transitions them into a biblical explanation that addresses their real-time situation. It's beautiful what he does here. But the first thing he says is, people, listen to me. Listen up. I know my audience. You're Jews, and you're people from people that are Jews that have moved abroad, and you've come back. You're residents of Jerusalem. It's a beautiful thing that he does. He says, I know who you are. I understand you, and I'm going to communicate to you on your terms. And the very first thing that he does after he uses humor to diffuse the situation or earn himself another moment to talk is he locates this experience, he locates a biblical explanation for it in the book of Joel, which is smart because he appeals to what the group already accepts as self-revealed truth. In other words, 
he knows this is an easy route to go because the Jews knew the Old Testament. This was their Bible. And he knows if he can show them in the Bible, it's kind of an inarguable thing for him to say. He says, listen, this is not people getting drunk. This is something you've already read about was going to happen. And he goes the whole way back to the book of Joel, the prophet Joel. He says, and Joel, this, Joel said this was going to happen. He said what you're experiencing is the beginning of a new period of history that Joel gives the title to the last days. Joel said we were going to at some point move into a historic period called the last days. Joel showed us here's what we should be watching for to know when this is where we are in God's calendar. God said the last days will begin like the a.m. of the last days was going to look like this crazy experience where he pours out his Holy Spirit not just on the Jews Not just on the people of the covenant, not just on Abraham's kids. He will now pour it out on them, but on everybody. Peter says, look around you, and this looks different, doesn't it? Here's what he says. Young people are experiencing this. You know, look at Leroy over there. He's 97, and he's experiencing it. There's men and women who are experiencing this. Now, you have, if you understand the Jewish culture at all, this was shattering. He goes on, this is for people who are slaves, people who are free, people who are Arab, people who are Hebrew, people who are of every color under the sun. Joel says there's coming a day when God would pour out his Holy Spirit on everybody, the young, the old, the male, the female, the rich, the poor, and the in-between from every language of every ethnicity of every tribe, and it would be different than anything that we've experienced up to this point, which was very ethnic-centric. He says, and what's going to happen is you're going to see prophecies. You're going to see, he starts dreams, visions. He doesn't list tongues in there, but it's safe. I think it's a safe conclusion to say that Peter's saying, you're going to see all kinds of things that come along with this of God revealing himself to all these different people in historic proportions. And he's saying, this is what you're experiencing. You're experiencing the beginning of the last days. He says, this is the beginning. He says, but Joel also tells us that there's an end to the last days. And it's going to look like cosmic disturbances and the earth falling apart. And it will be a great time of terror and judgment of all human beings. And it will cause people to be afraid and to think they're going to die. And he concludes that passage. Peter says, and everybody who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So here's what he does. He leaves it. He cuts. He chops that quote off in an odd place. Everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Here's what's going on. Peter recognizes there's a question about a current event in the minds and in the lips of all these gathered people. He starts off by saying what it isn't with a joke. Then he gives them a biblical solid explanation and a context for what it actually is. He says it's a period of history that's beginning now. The page is turning literally right now at this second. This page is turning. We are now living in a new era. It's not the covenant era. It's not the era of Jesus' 33 years on earth. It's a new era that's beginning today called the last days when what God is going to do is pour out his spirit on everybody, everywhere. He said, but the end of this, this era will also come to an end. And people will be terrified and feel like they're going to die. And everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, which is interesting because here's the thing. Think about this. Think about this. 
No Jew listening to Peter thought that they would be the ones who need saving from a day of judgment. Every single one of those listeners assumed that they were on the right side of God and everybody else. Have you ever tried to talk to somebody about Jesus who didn't think they needed to be saved? This is exactly what he's dealing with. And he knows this. Because it's not because he prepared, the Holy Spirit's giving this to him in real time, even though he did kind of prepare, and we'll bring that out later. He didn't have a Bible or a scroll. He's quoting all the scripture from memory. Okay. In real time, he's moving, and you can, for him to be able to communicate over, over 10,000 people without a microphone indicates two things. Number one, he must have found some courage and found his voice. And number two, they must have been spellbound and been very quiet. I need a microphone to get over 150 people with a couple crying kids. It's just amazing all the things that are happening here. But now he makes a critical transition. He says, everybody who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But he realizes, but nobody in this crowd right now thinks they need to call upon the name of the Lord. They think they're already saved. Now he needs to make a shift in the conversation to show them that they need to be saved. Because none of us who comes to, if you don't think you need to be saved, then you don't need a savior. But when you come to this uncomfortable, inescapable reality that without a savior, I am doomed and I deserve punishment and death, it will depress you to the very core of the soles of your sneakers. And then Jesus becomes this blinding, brilliant light of salvation to you. And I will tell you, the people who cling to Jesus most desperately are the ones who realize they need a Savior. And we're very, we like to talk about believing. We don't like to talk about sin and repentance because we would offend people. I'm telling you, you need to be offended to the core of your being about how lousy we really are. Or else Jesus just doesn't meet a need to you. He's just an add-on. You think you're just like those Jews. I'm coming to pray. I do the sacrifices. I was born in the right family. I'm the right ethnicity. We've been Catholic or Christian or whatever for 10 generations, and I'm good. And he has to prove to them, no, you're not. You know what he does now? He takes the attention off of the current event, and he moves on to Jesus. He takes the whole conversation in the direction of Jesus. And the very next thing he does is he says, you all know Jesus the Nazarene. He doesn't say Jesus the Lord, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. He talks about the dude they knew. Because every single one of them knew Jesus in real time. They knew what his hair looked like, his face looked like. They knew how he dressed. They knew the sound of his voice. They had met him. He says, you all know him. You know him as Jesus the Nazarene. And he spends the next few minutes doing this. He's proving to them that even though they all knew him, every single one of them was guilty of thinking of Jesus as less than who he presented himself to be. And that was the thing they needed to be saved from. And so do we. We think of Jesus as less than who he actually says that he is. And he says, I'm going to prove to you that he was more than just Jesus the Nazarene. And he gives them four authentications. I have to go through these very quickly. You can read them. He shows them how that, he's like, God is trying to show you that Jesus is more than just Joseph and Mary's boy. He is more than a disappointment because you thought he was going to be some ruler and he ended up not. But he's more than just the guy that was murdered less than two months ago. He's more than that. He's more than just a good teacher. He's more than just a brilliant man. He's more than just an orator. He's more than just a miracle worker. He's more than just a sideshow. But he has to start 
by building a case for who Jesus was. And he gives them four authentications. It's like, here are the four ways God has been, he uses the word, endorsing Jesus as his son, as your Lord, and as the Messiah. Three things the Jews never put together. They never imagined that one person would fulfill all those roles and responsibilities. They separated them out. And the fact that Jesus died, they're like, well, he definitely wasn't the Messiah. He wouldn't have died. But he's going to go right back and say, he showed you four ways. God showed you through Jesus' miracles. God showed you through his death. God showed you through his resurrection. And God is showing you right now in real time by this spirit being poured out, he's showing you four ways to get your attention that Jesus is both his son and also our Lord who David was talking about and also the Messiah. And if he's those three things, we all need to have relationship with him or we're in desperate, uh, we're in bad shape. First thing he says is, you all know Jesus and you know of his miracles and you've seen his wonders and you've seen his signs. Miracles, wonders, signs. The third word, most important one for us today. But he's saying to them, you've seen his miracles. Two months ago, you saw him stop by over here and heal, heal the person that couldn't walk. Most of you have walked outside of town and you've gone and you've interviewed Lazarus, the Bible tells us. You've investigated. Even if you weren't there when it happened, most of you have gone and investigated and you've found inarguable evidence of all his miracles. You accept those. You recognize those. You've seen some of the wonders. I like to think that they were still wondering how the veil in the temple got ripped. Did they have a seamstress that had fixed it 50 days later? Obviously, word like that would have spread around. Other things we don't talk about. Some of them were probably uh, there when some of the dead people came out of the grave after Jesus died on the cross and walked around talking about things. He's like, you all, and they don't argue. They're like, yeah, we've seen the miracles. We've seen the wonders. But he says they weren't just miracles or wonders. They were signs. They were more than what they appeared to be. He's saying Jesus was not just this dude who wanted to gather crowds and leave them slack-jawed at all the magic tricks he could do. He wasn't just about doing miracles and creating wonders and, and being this kind of sideshow carnival. That's not who he was. He was trying to use every one of those things as a sign to open up a window to introduce God's true character to you, and you missed it. You saw a bunch of signs. You heard people speaking in tongues. You saw people healed. You saw people impacted by the touch of Jesus Christ. But you missed the fact that they were signs where God was trying to reveal to you who he was by endorsing his son that way. You were supposed to be watching for the guy who did these things, and you missed it. So the first thing he says is God has already authenticated Jesus as the Lord because there was nobody else. Even though there were some prophets that came close, nobody did what Jesus did. And he's saying, that's the Lord we were supposed to be looking for, and you missed it. The second thing he says is he showed you his messiahship through his death. I'm way far down here. Let me catch up to that. Which is kind of beautiful what he does here. Um, he actually silences the Armenian and Calvinist debate before it even happens, which is a beautiful thing. And I don't have time to expand this. Let me just show you what he does here. And there's a couple different elements to this. But here's the basic question that modern smart people in Christianity like to debate. And they debate this. When it comes to the day-to-day -day events of history, does God, has God already mapped it all out? Is it predestined? Is it set in concrete? Does he know everything that's going to happen? Does nothing surprise him? And is it all fixed? 
Or does man have free will and free choice? Do we get to determine our choices and events and how things play out? And then there's little gradations of this argument that says, well, maybe it's 80% this and 20% this. There's permissive will and there's perfect will and there's maybe certain things that are fixed and certain things God lets up to people. And you know, that, there's great books written on that by people smarter than me and it's really arrogant to say that Jesus' answer satisfies it for me, but I trust the Bible to interpret itself and Jesus' argument satisfies it or Peter's argument satisfies it for me here. It's beautiful. He says it was God's perfect predetermined plan for Jesus of Nazareth to die on the cross. And the way for it to happen was through the free will and the free choice of the people who crucified him. (laughs) Here's what, well, so Peter, did God know about it in advance or was it free will? And Peter's answer is yes. That God's perfect predetermined will and man's free choice sit right neatly alongside one another. And they coexist and they don't happen independent of one another. Well, pastor, that's not a satisfying explanation for me. Well, that's tough, but that's the one Jesus gives, and it kind of works, and the better one we'll get in heaven. And what he's saying is, yes, God planned and determined for it to happen. Jesus didn't die on the cross because he messed up. God planned for Jesus to be the Passover lamb. And the Jews are thinking, oh, that maybe then, because if God planned it, then Jesus could still possibly qualify as the Messiah because he didn't miss God's plan, you see. And then the second part of it, he says, but he did it through the free choice of people who crucified him on the cross, not as robots who were possessed by some spirit that bypassed their will. They chose to do it of their own free will in accordance and alignment and fulfillment of God's perfect plan. Well, pastor, that doesn't quite make sense. On the one hand, it doesn't. On the other hand, it makes perfect sense. He's a finite God, or he's an infinite God. We're finite people, and just because we don't have an explanation that dots all the I's and crosses all the T's doesn't mean that there isn't one or that we need one. He silences this whole thing before we even got wound up about it. And for me, hey, that's good enough. That works for me. I'll move on. Satisfies it for me. Does my, do my choices affect my outcome? Yes. Does it surprise God? No. How does that work? I don't know. And I don't need to. Amen? So you can sleep over that. You can sleep okay on that one if you're up late at night worrying about that one. Then he says, but um, he, he talks about how Jesus' resurrection was another authentication. So he says, listen, he did signs and wonders. God's showing you that he's the Lord. He died on the cross. That's showing that he still could be the Messiah. Then he says, he authenticates him through his raising of the dead. He quotes from King David's Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. He's using a lot of what we would call the Old Testament. And you're thinking to yourself, A, why is he going all to the... Isn't it beautiful that you can create an entire gospel message out of just the Old Testament? Isn't that beautiful? But people say we shouldn't be, you know, that's Old Testament. We shouldn't listen. God didn't send Jesus to right, you know, right-click, copy, and delete the Old Testament. What he's showing here through Peter is that Jesus was the continuation of what God had already been doing. He's the fulfillment of those things. And he brings up, you know, like he's not, Jesus isn't saying the Old Testament is inferior and you should throw it out. He's saying, listen, because you have the Old Testament, this should all make sense to you. I am continuing what God has already been doing. And we're just going to keep trucking on down the highway. 
This is why he brings out these psalms. Plus, you know, King David was like the icon in the ears. And if he can show that King David's on board with this, the argument gets stronger. And so from memory, he quotes two passages of King David. And he says, you know, you've all met Jesus. You all saw him die. There were hundreds of witnesses to the resurrection. And yet I'm going to show you on top of those things that the Old Testament also supports this. So the eyewitnesses, all the other things, everything you've seen, experienced, and you've known, it all comes together and it supports his final argument. In the Psalms, he shows David, he says, I'm going to quote you some Psalms, and David's talking about somebody. And you've interpreted this over the years, and you've all thought David was talking about himself. But you've gotten the riddle wrong. He's like, let me show you who David was talking about. He says, David's describing a person, and it's like, it's like David's giving clues as who he talks about. He says, the person that he's talking to in the Psalms will be known as somebody called the Lord, first name the Last name, Lord, okay, the Lord. Up until that point, most people thought it was David, but he points out that, couldn't have, that could not have been the case. He says this person will die. Well, David was referred to as a king or a lord. He did die, but the next clue is that he would not rot in the grave. His physical body would not remain buried and it, would not suffer decomposition, and that as a result of his body not suffering decomposition, his active presence would be available to human beings continuously. And he's, Peter says, listen, let's think about this logically. You all agree that, P, that David wrote this and that he wasn't high or smoking something when he did. He's telling us there's going to be a person called the Lord who would die, but whose body would not rot in the grave and his presence would be available to us continually. You all thought it was David, but think about it. We can go two blocks that way and dig up his rotting body. It wasn't him. His body is currently rotting. He's like, but look how Jesus fits the bill. We can't go find his body. It's not rotting. He died. He, if he is the Lord, he fits all the characteristics. He, there's more to, to say there. But basically what Peter was doing is he's showing, I'm prophesying. He's saying David was prophesying about not himself, but somebody from his family who in the future would demonstrate that he is the Lord because he'd do something no one had done. He would die, but his body wouldn't rot in the grave. And now all the listeners are like, okay. Obviously, God was trying to get our attention. We missed it. Obviously, if this is all holding water, Joel, you know, we see that Jesus dying on the cross was part of God's plan. David told us to look for this guy. His body's not there. There's hundreds of eyewitnesses that says, and then he caps it all off by saying in verses 33 through 36 that Jesus being exalted through the outpouring of his spirit was the final kind of the end to his argument. He wraps up the argument by again quoting from David in that passage where it says, the Lord said unto my Lord, which is kind of weird language. It's like it, you know, it didn't make sense to interpret it as saying God said to God or Yahweh said to Yahweh. It didn't make a whole lot of sense. And again, people thought he was saying, the Lord said to my Lord. In other words, he, the Lord, they thought it was David saying, I am the Lord, and I'm speaking to my Lord. Sit down on my right hand until I make, until I make your enemies your footstool. And he's saying that makes no sense for David to be talking himself that way. He says, you've heard, many of you heard Jesus promise that... Ten, that what he actually did 10 days ago. You heard him say, I'm going away, and I'm going to sit down on the right hand of my dad. And the proof that I've done it is I'll send you the Holy Spirit. You'll know I've sat down at the right hand of my dad when I send you the Holy Spirit. And he's like, look around you. Do you see the Holy Spirit being poured out all around you? Yes, that's where the whole conversation started back when we were thinking you were drunk. And how did we get to this place in the conversation? And he says, so in summary, 
Jesus of Nazareth is both your Lord and your Messiah. And it says they were pierced to their heart. And they said, brothers, what do we do? And he says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And then you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot more to say here that I can take off on next week. But you start to see the characteristics of this is how people got into the church. This is how people got into Christianity. There's a couple things they had to do and then something God had to do. They had to repent. They had to change their thinking from saying Jesus is just Jesus of Nazareth to he is Lord and Messiah. They had to repent for saying I was wrong about what I thought about Jesus. That's what we all have to turn from. For thinking too low about Jesus. For being lukewarm to the idea of who he is. To that he is just simply an option or a mascot to pull out when we're in trouble or we need something. He says he is Lord and Messiah and you must repent. Which is a harsh word to Jews who didn't think they needed repentance. And not for that. You have to repent. and You have to say I was wrong about what I thought about Jesus. And I am aligning what I think about Jesus with what the Bible tells me is true about him. Not about what I want to think that he is, but who the Bible says that he is. That's what Peter said then. Then he says you need to be baptized. And I'll only say this for a moment. It's interesting that he, he emphasizes water baptism. And I realize this will be an insufficient explanation. I understand a lot about what baptism is. And there's some of it I don't understand. You know, why did Jesus say we need to get in water and get all wet and have these clothes we need to take home and get into a pool with chlorine or a river or something? Why, why did he need to do that? And I understand, I understand the symbolism of it, what it meant. I mean, repentance and baptism have always been closely linked throughout the New Testament. It's an instruction of Jesus affirmed by the apostles. But what you're saying, if you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, you're under direct command for the king of the universe to be baptized in water. And if you're a Christian and you've chosen not to do that, what you're saying is, I'm not going to go along with what the Lord tells me I need to do. Or, you know, I want to believe in God, but getting all wet in water just doesn't do it for me, and I'm not going to do that, or I'm not going to do it now, or I'm going to just keep putting it off. And it already puts you into tension with, is he the Lord? Well, I don't totally understand, and why? Will you obey him even if you don't totally understand all of it? Isn't it interesting? That's like one of the first steps of obedience he challenges Christians to do. I'm going to ask you to do something and give you a reason, but it might not be a complete enough reason for all of you. But am I your Lord and will you trust me in that? Repent, be baptized. Those are the things we do. We can do that. Then there's one thing he says, then you wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it's neat here that he, he puts his toe in the water of something that we're still trying to debate today. What about these events of this day should we look for today and what was just unique to that time? And we landed on a few of them. We said, you know, all the Christians in the world being under one roof at one time, we're never going to recreate that. The sound of the rushing mighty wind, you know, we don't expect to see that. The, the sight of fire coming down and sitting on everybody's head, we don't expect to see that again. Speaking in other tongues, we do see happen a couple other times in the book of Acts when it says that they received a distinct experience with the Holy Spirit that happened either parallel with or after their salvation. We see it in uh, four, four other times where, where Luke records the details of someone receiving this subsequent experience. Three of the four times speaking in other tongues was present. One time, it's not clear what it was. So we do see that again. We've landed on the place that maybe that's not 
all the time, every way that it happens, but we're not going to discourage it. We're not going to write it off. We're going to embrace that for those people who have received the Spirit poured out on them in that way. Our thing is run with that, go with that, learn how God wants to use that in your life and submit that gift to the teaching God gives us for Scripture for how and when it should be used. And we can cheer that on and grow from that as much as we can for the people who have the gift of encouragement or exhortation or whatever it is. We'll talk more about that over the next couple of weeks. It's interesting that we sometimes in Pentecostal churches, we really get like everybody needs to speak in tongues and everybody come down front and repeat after me, tra-la-la-la-la and all this business. We talk nothing about brokenness. We talk nothing about holiness. We talk nothing about being hungry for God and drawing close to him. And that's missed in the whole equation. But the results of this is not everybody was saved, but it was pretty effective. 3,000 people were added to their number that day. I'd say that was pretty effective. Jesus didn't have altar calls like that. Not only, were they, not only did they repent, they were baptized. They did not get up thinking about how to dunk 3,000 people underwater. And who was going to fill out all those certificates and mail them? You know, like, it's like there was so much of this that was just, it happened without an approved strategy from a committee. There was no homework done. It was just people who said, you know what, there's something new alive inside of me that's allowing me to speak with boldness and clarity to people about Jesus and an ability that is more powerful than I have in myself. And that created opportunities for content and presentation. In fact, that wasn't even the end of the service. There's a little phrase in there. After this, he continued to preach. He says, save yourself from this crooked generation. Crooked. Scolio, from the word we get for scoliosis. This arched, crook, deformed generation. Let me give you the, let me give you the application points so I can wrap everything up. Application, I gave you a lot of theology. Let me give you some practical. If you're trying to think about what does it mean to talk to people about Jesus. Let me give you three things we can learn from, from Peter real quick. You can fill them in in your notes. The responsibility for an effective sermon, presentation, conversation about Jesus lies not only with the speaker, but also with the listeners. Peter says twice, three times maybe in there, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. At one point he says, now think about this. He's saying, I can give you great content and great presentation, but if you're not doing your part as a listener, this means nothing. Now, this is not, oh, pastor, you're just trying to get yourself off the hot seat. Listen, no, I'm not, because it means that the speaker has a lot of responsibility, maybe even more than 50%. But understand, when you want to talk to people about something that's important to you, you realize the challenge of trying to get them listening to gauge it. It's a, listen, when I'm talking to my seven-year-old about how important it is for him to make the bed in the morning, my content is solid, my presentation is spectacular, but if he's not listening, it's a waste of both of our time. I need him to be doing the work of making sure that it registers. There's nothing more frustrating than trying to get your message out to a listener that could care less. Be a good listener. You learn more by listening than you do by talking. Okay? Be a good listener. Yes, your pastor could do better. In fact, you can be right now on your phone streaming all the best in the world. Why are you here listening to me? (laughs) I don't know. But listen. Listen and think. Listen and think. Number two, scripture memory is essential for being an effective witness about, for Jesus. One of the things that gave him confidence is that he had stored in his heart truth of the Bible. He had committed it to memory, thought about it. He was comfortable enough with the content that when the opportunity opened up, he was ready to go. You need to be adding memorizing scripture to your daily growth plan with Jesus. I am embarrassed by how little of the Bible the average Christian knows when a Muslim can quote the Quran to you. Let me give you a few to start with. Romans 
You can write these down if you don't have them. Well, Pastor, I've heard them before. Memorize them and live them. Be ready with them. Because that's the great equalizer Peter had to get to. Everybody has sinned. There's not a good group and a bad group. We've all sinned and we've fallen short of the standard. That standard is the glory of God. There's no person that has equaled God's glory. We've all sinned. Romans 6.23 tells you the outcomes. The payment you get for living that way is death. Makes sense. We believe in a justice system. We want one. We want people who do wrong to be penalized. Well, I don't like the idea that I'm sentenced to death. Yes, you do. You want people who do wrong things to be penalized, don't you? Well, yeah. Well, the Bible says we're those people. I don't want to tell people about that. It's part of the truth. Presentation, presentation, presentation. It's another day. Wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 10, 9, and 10. Well, then what do we do? Confess with your mouth. Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart. God raised it from the dead. You'll be forgiven. A couple other ones to put in there. John three sixteen. if you don't have it. Already in memory, and 1 John 1, 9. Those are your five. Pastor, this is very basic. Absolutely. If we master this by 100%, I'll move on. Still love me? I'll tell you, you start to store Scripture in your heart, it's more than just preparing for an argument, because I've never argued someone to Jesus. You will hide God's Word in your heart. It will also produce obedience and holiness in your own life. To start there. That equipped Peter to be ready to seize on an opportunity God knew was coming that he didn't. And finally, last application point. Well, how do these opportunities come up? I'll tell you how. Two things. You've got to have both. Not either or both. Both and. Living close to Jesus and walking close to people will create opportunities for, for sharing the gospel. I don't have any opportunities. Two questions. Are you living close to Jesus? Good. Plenty of opportunities for you. Thank God. Give me a hundred more people like you in our services on Sunday morning. Jeez. I will not sweat through ten shirts and go home wondering if anything went through. That's awesome. Thank you. I'll give you money after the service. That's good for one person. I don't carry a lot of cash. Uh, but living close to Jesus. If you're living close to Jesus, that's part of the equation. Because listen, if you're not, I don't want you talking to people about Jesus. That's not the PR we need. Hello? Right? Live close to Jesus. And then you got to walk close to people. Well, I don't like crowds. Fantastic. Who's the one? Maybe God hasn't called you to crowds. He's called you to one. He'll assess the one he called to crowds for whether they went to crowds. He'll assess the one he called to one by whether you went to the one. There's no inferior calling here. If you live close to God and you walk close to people, you will have overwhelming opportunities because I live this. I live this and I see it and I will not share any of my stories with you because there's people who live here locally that I've made the mistake a couple years ago sometimes of telling you about that and then they happen to listen to the podcast. I did that as one couple. I was just really burdened for them and I, and I mentioned their first names. They pray for my friends. They're really close. They'd never been to church, blah, blah, blah. I found out through a friend of a friend that they listened, of all weeks for them to listen to a podcast of a sermon. And they said, I heard, and the young lady says to her girlfriend, she says, I heard your pastor mention our names in service. What does it mean? He said, he, he's praying for my soul. What does that even mean? I'm like, that just sounds terrifying. You know, like, if you don't, like, well, he wants my soul. Like, what type of a villain is he? But listen, I, I'm telling you, you walk close to Jesus. You, you live close to Jesus. You walk close to people. You will have opportunities. You will have opportunities. 
So be prepared for him. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we love you. We worship you. You are a good God. I pray for anybody that is under the sound of my voice right now who is not right with your son, Jesus Christ, that needs to repent today, that needs to prepare to be baptized, that needs to be ready to wait on your promises. Friend, if that's you and you just know that you need to make a decision to turn to Jesus today, like Peter's audience, here's the prayer. It's a simple ABC prayer. Admit, believe, choose. You admit that you're a sinner. You believe in Jesus Christ and who he presents himself to be, and you choose him to be your Lord, not just an advisor, not just a guide, but your Lord. I want to lead you in a prayer of confession that Paul encourages us to pray. The model is given to us in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, and it supports very nicely with what Peter said about calling on the name of the Lord to be saved. A simple prayer of confession that says, Jesus, I admit I'm a sinner, and I need to be saved. Jesus, I believe in you exactly as you present yourself to be. As a sinless man who died on the cross, who rose from the dead, who is alive today. You are fully God. You are fully man. You're God's son. You're my Lord. And Jesus, I accept forgiveness. I invite your spirit into my life to redefine who I am and take up your new home inside of me. And I surrender and submit control of my life to your lordship. Thank you for saving me. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.